Welcome everybody to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Thursday, August 25th, 2022. Uh, two days ago, it was the hashtag's 15th anniversary. So I got to do, I don't know, I don't want to call it a victory lap because that sounds self-congratulatory, but uh, it was an interesting moment to stop and reflect on, uh, I suppose, my contribution to social media and to this hellscape of a, of a platform, um, which also is, is wonderful and lovely and connects us to amazing people. Um, it was also, I guess, an interesting moment just to think about how Twitter has both evolved, devolved, stayed the same, and continues to remain this somewhat, I don't know, soap-operific um, platform where people come together and they do stuff. Um, one of the things that I uh, actually wanted to, I guess, call out now, since we are, of course, recording on Twitter Spaces, um, is what was a new announcement as of today. It's been previewed for some time, but that is the move uh, for Twitter to, I guess, embrace podcasting, um, which is essentially, you know, what we're doing here. Um, we are using the live platform, of course, to to share kind of in real time, to bring guests on um, and to facilitate a different type of, like, an, I don't know, like studio experience. But um, Twitter's move into podcast, I think, is just so interesting. Again, sort of thinking back, you know, 15, 16 years to where it all got started, which, of course, was as audio. And audio was one of the first social podcasting platforms. So it's like we've come full circle and I, I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but I thought that was sort of an interesting moment to sort of just consider uh, in the annals of, of social media history. You know, we, um, we discussed you bringing your OG crew on to talk about the, this is true. The anniversary. We can still do that. If yeah. You want to do it. You know, so, so many of them have, um, I think gone to the wind in, in a sense, or just sort of like dispersed. However, I was actually thinking about this. Um, there, there's sort of, on the one hand, a compression of time element where the things that took place over the course of you know Twitter's history kind of happened actually over a lar- lar- longer and larger sequence than a lot of people think. So, for example, it, it took a very long time for Twitter to get search. And I think a lot of people kind of misremember search as being part of you know Twitter from the beginning because most platforms, of course, have search. But that wasn't true here. And Twitter actually acquired a company called Semis. Uh, which became Twitter's search and was one of the ways in which the hashtag kind of was Trojan horsed into the Twitter platform itself. So it'd be super interesting, I think, to get folks like that on who had built, uh, you know, kind of apps around the ecosystem um, onto the platform. And, you know, maybe maybe what we'll do, because I was, I was having a conversation today with uh, Amir Shabbat, who runs the Twitter developer platform now, um, and who I worked with at Google and um, also headed up Slack's platform and just, you know, all around kind of a super developer advocate kind of person. Um, the Chirp Twitter developer conference is coming back this fall. And so, you know, Amir is interested in, in coming on the show. That might be an interesting moment to kind of do a little bit of a mm. retrospective as well as like mm. talk about where the platform wants to go. Um, they previewed something today. What do they call it? called it something uh, specific um, that was kind of interesting. Compiled tweets or something. Um, let me see. They're called tweet tiles. Um, and this is something that he just, he just shared today, tweeted about. Um, I guess it's, it's in the vein of allowing you to add multiple attachment types to a tweet. You know, so going beyond just like a single animated, you know, GIF or GIF, uh, for example. And, uh, having a full rich multimedia experience, which from a developer ecosystem is interesting, especially if you start to think about Twitter more as a protocol that should be able to move any type of medium, uh, you know, or media 
to any recipient and to contexts that relate to groups or communities or DMs and, and so on. Okay, let's 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 do that. Um, <laughs> but let's see if we can do that after um, I'm intending to shit all over Twitter right now in this episode. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, uh, I want, okay. I got two more things on on the podcast landscape, and then we'll switch over. Um, sure. One is that I saw another test um, of Spotify's native podcasting uh, ads, like in the product itself. And it was actually for the podcast episode that you sent me with uh, Derek Thompson and Chuck P. Klosterman. Klosterman, Klosterman. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Klosterman. Yes. Um, Which, by the way, was an amazing, brilliant episode. And I'd love to dive in on that at some other point. Um, But what happens now is that as you're essentially listening to a podcast episode, um, the advertising artwork will appear as the album art. And then you'll have a button that can take you to a website. Mostly I think they all go to websites. It'll say like shop now and uh, you'll be listening to the ad and the entire thing kind of changes. And for the episode itself, there's now a listing of advertisers that you heard uh, during the episode. So it's starting to really get there in terms of what the podcast kind of advertising experience is going to be for, for podcasts. And in, in the context of Twitter moving towards podcasts and YouTube just launched a new uh, landing page for podcasts at youtube.com slash podcasts. I just like, I feel like there's a maturing of the space and a competitive energy in the space. That's just really significant and something that we should just pay attention to. Agreed. Um, I'm always told that uh, I need to do more uh, in terms of putting stuff on YouTube, but um, that's hard for me to do. Uh, cause I put my head in a box every day, but, um, we, we, we do, po- we do post to YouTube every day. So, okay. Well, I, yeah, you literally do post here or put your head in a box. Um, okay. Anyways, enough of the preamble and the things I wanted to get off at the top of the, the show. Um, this week has been another big week, uh, for Twitter and for Twitter news. And we have, uh, none other than Kevin Dugan from, uh, New York mag to come on and talk about some of his reporting that he's been doing about this topic. Uh, Brian, do you want to tee this up? Yeah. Um, uh, Kevin, should we call it Intelligencer or New York Magazine? What, what's, uh, I don't, I don't know the nomenclature. Uh, e- either one. I mean, it's, it's, uh, Intelligencer is, is one of the, that's, what, that, for that's what I say when I, when I quote from you on the show, I say Intelligencer. So okay, sure. try to make it clear. Um, okay. Let me frame it this way. When this story broke earlier this week, I, of course, immediately framed it in the Elon sort of Twitter uh, trial sort of thing. And over the course of the week, I realized that it's, it's bigger than that. And, and, and the way I want to frame it is all of the things that I left behind are coming back, which is if you've been listening to the show long enough, you know that Twitter – was kind of a joke. Um, we used to joke about, oh, Twitter is going to innovate on product. They never did that. <laughs> they Twitter is known in especially Wall Street circles as being like the most dysfunctional company, you know, especially among social media. They can't make money off of it. Other people can make money off of social media, but Twitter never figured out a way to. Um, the, it, a clown car, I think, is what <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg called them at some point. Um, and so all of a sudden, I want to I want to leave the Elon stuff till later. But all of a sudden, 
what this uh, whistleblower complaint has brought back to the fore is, oh Jesus, they they were a, a, a clown car um, allegedly. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say that everyone everything we're gonna say, all people on the show, everything we say about this is allegedly. Um, but it sounds like that allegedly the clown car shit show was ongoing, and that's what this whistleblower has sort of brought to the fore, even beyond anything about Elon, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this complaint shows so much dysfunction up and down. Um, it seems like, you know, I mean, you're right that um, Wall Street has been pretty correctly diagnosing that. Uh, Twitter doesn't know how to make money, um, and more of those details are coming out. You know, not only through this whistleblower complaint, but through uh, the, the Musk lawsuit. Um, but the things that are—I mean, it's some pretty incredible allegations in there, especially around national security. The fact that um, Peter Zacco uh, Mudge is saying that they employed spies from the Indian government um, to you know, be a part of it that um, you know people essentially didn't care. They didn't care about uh, security. They didn't care about um, spam. Uh, although he did kind of uh, both of the he did play like a little both sides on that. Um, it, it really it does show um, not only that things were extremely dysfunctional, but he he also puts the blame on Parag Agrawal, right, the, the, the current CEO. Um, yeah, he says that Jack Dorsey was checked out, but um, he really is gunning for Parag, and I think that, that is a really interesting uh, thing that hasn't really been covered too much. Uh, it hasn't been discussed too much how centrally focused he is uh, on the current CEO. Yeah, that was interesting to me as well. Um, I, I remember thinking uh, when Parag became the CEO that that was sort of a surprise to those of us watching Twitter. Yeah. Um, and then essentially what he's saying, I'm, I'm looking for your quote in here, was like he's laying most of the company's problems as being in his wheelhouse because before he became the CEO, he was the CTO. And it, I don't know, it, it's sort of painting him as like sort of this uh, striver, duplicitous sort of executive who apparently a lot of the board wasn't even in favor of him taking the top job. Yeah, he mentions that um, that some board members were not in favor. He, he doesn't really go into that. Um, and, you know, since Mudge was not at the board level. I do wonder how he actually got to know that. Um, although, you know, he does have access to some pretty high level people. So, um, yeah, it, 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 there are, uh, number of allegations in the suit, which, you know, and these allegations were, this is a roadmap, right? This is a roadmap for federal investigators to go in and, and dig some more, um, and these, a lot of these allegations are saying that, you know, he wanted, uh, Parag wanted, um, Mudge to hide information that, um, he was 
one of the forces behind uh, keeping the board in the dark about some of the security problems. You know, I, I don't know how true this is. Some people have kind of uh, called into question how, how much that could really be true. And, you know, there, it is, it is uh, a difficult thing to prove, I think, but, um, but he's, he's trying to, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's electric fraud. One of the, the things that this all kind of, I think, uh, hinges on first is the FTC consent decree. Look, I mean, almost every company that does social in Silicon Valley is under some consent decree. Google was under a consent decree. Facebook was, uh, you know, essentially there are, as these companies were figuring out how to build products that people would use in the social space, of course, none of these concerns around, well, I don't want to say none of these concerns around privacy per se, but the, the ways in which these companies were built was relatively fast and loose because they needed to be. One of the things that I I, I kind of was struck by in reading through the complaint and trying to think through that era and now where things are, you know, 10 or 11 years later, um, you know, Mudge comes in late to the game in some ways, uh, still in the Jack Dorsey era. And this was actually sort of an interesting thing that I was trying to piece apart because, you know, as as you suggest, most of the the criticism goes to the now CEO, uh, Prague Agarwal. Um, however, Mudge was brought in under the Dorsey era, and even the complaint says that Dorsey was checked out, you know, for a good period of time. Now, what I'm imagining, and again, this is this is my speculative brain, and so I'm not saying that these things actually occurred, but what I can imagine is that there were there was time when Jack Dorsey, you know, as someone who you know came up or at least was familiar with the hacker space, certainly is is big in the Bitcoin and crypto land. You know, spends a lot of time with like you know developers, hackers. Like in you know, Twitter came out of IRC, so there is this legacy of being within the hacker space and not the business space. And so Mudge comes in later on, and I'm sure they have somewhat of a respectful you know like relationship, uh, certainly an awareness. No, Jack Dorsey has in so fact, much. Well, in me. fact, uh-huh. um, um, uh, Kevin, to, to step on your, I'm going to quote from you. Mudge said that he spoke with Dorsey about six times over the course of a year with each 30-minute call at his own request and Dorsey speaking perhaps 50 words during those calls. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. But what I'm saying is before this period. So I do believe there was a time when Jack Dorsey got checked out. And Jack Dorsey was probably burnt out, was probably... He still lionizes and respects these hacker types or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but the, the, the point is, is, and this is sort of how I was framing it at the beginning... Um, it was. It, it's the original sin of Twitter, which is no one actually, <laughs> no one actually, passionately believes in it as a product or a service. It's some sort of accident that people fought over and knifed each other over, but no one actually cared enough to actually make it good. If you're willing to believe um, what Mudge is saying here, it's that he actually gave a shit, mm-hmm. and he was going into a. Um, uh, a culture where mm. no one was giving a shit, and and that's why he's doing this thing. Which uh, we can talk about much in a second. But um, uh, Kevin, does does that ring true to you? The idea that one of Mudge's grudges is that is th- is that Jack and and other people at at the top were not paying attention to the things that he cared about. That he was he was screaming from the rooftops, "You guys aren't doing enough." Yeah, I, I, and and. 
like let's take a step back here and take and think about like what Jack Dorsey has said about his own company, right? I mean, he said that you know he wishes it wasn't a company, that he wishes that it was more of a protocol or it's more of some sort of idea. Um, he literally said that today on Twitter. He did. Yeah. yeah, he said that. Yeah, right, right. But but uh, as much as he wants that to happen, it's still a $44 billion company, right? He can wish it all he wants. And I think when Mudge was brought in, it's, uh, he, Mudge was hired to look at it as an operating company, right? Not as a protocol, not as a dream. And, uh, and so you have those two really clashing uh, ways of looking at Twitter. Yeah, I mean, and, but, but, but like one of the reasons why I think the attention existed was in some ways like the CTO who should have been responsible for security, right? And you got to also right. put this in context. Like the January 6th, you know, uh, attack had occurred. You know, Donald Trump had been kicked off the platform. I mean, Jack Dorsey was not living his best life, like having the most fun running this company. It was like shit show after yeah. shit show. And it wasn't about, you know, these ideals that kind of started the platform as this open and free place for expression and dissidents and, you know, journalists to be able to like, get the word out. Now, suddenly people, I don't mean people like governments and big, powerful institutions were starting to really care about Twitter. And so I imagine that his day-to-day was starting to become a real shit show and that these underlying security yeah. issues, which I think to Brian's point, I think is a good one, which is like people within the company either weren't empowered, didn't care, didn't know how, or weren't engaged with actually securing the system because they were more concerned about growth, which frankly, I mean, it is a concern. Like, and I think this is one of the tensions, at least for this, the show and for the audience of the show is like a hard thing to, to work through and to consider, right? You could have, there's never, or there's no such thing as absolute concern, uh, security, but you can of course prioritize security to a great degree and you can require everything be logged and, you know, for, for users to be, you know, very not users, developers, engineers, for people who have access to sensitive systems to go through a series of checks and to have a much more rigorous security footing in terms of the way that they get their work done. That also slows things down or it can slow things down. So when it comes to Twitter needing to, well, and I think this also, Brian, goes to your point about Twitter finally getting into a place where it's building and shipping and launching things. It's a, it's a tension and it's a set of trade-offs for risk mitigation. There's a risk of annihilation on one hand, where you don't continue to grow the business and the stock craters and the thing's not worth anything. And on the other hand, you completely secure the platform, but then it's so onerous that no one uses it, right? So these things are attention. And I got to imagine that when Dorsey decided to bring Mudge in, he was looking at like all the things that were starting to become risks and threats to the business was like, you know, now Elliot management is like breathing down my neck. Let's just get Mudge in here to actually like, you know, clean house and sort this shit out. Now, what I don't understand is how it's possible for Agarwal, who oversaw all these issues, to be then appointed to CEO. Why would that happen? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, my guess is that he was the uh, least controversial choice. He knew the systems, yes. how they worked. And, you know, mm. I, I mean, he, he, did anybody really think that he was going to be a longtime CEO? It, it, mm. it, 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 right. You know, I mean, to, but look at it from Wall Street's perspective, and I've, I've written about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the company was not doing well at share price. It had been taken over, or people tried to take it over a trillion times before. And you have a, you know, a relatively uncharismatic leader. Um, it, it probably, after Elliot just 
came in, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, tried to work their magic to make it more valuable. So it, it looked like a relatively good takeover target. So if, if I was the board, <laughs> you know, and Elon Musk comes along, I mean, they, they had to have think, they had to have been thinking that like this was going to happen eventually. Yeah, we should probably get to the Elon stuff in a second. But Chris, let me point this out to you. And I know that these people are our friends and they've been on the show or whatever, but look at all the people that that are no longer there that got fired, mm-hmm. like Kayvon yep. and also Mudge. Yep. Like so the, the the whole era that I'm talking about where you remember me doing those shows. Oh my god, Twitter is shipping a product. And like <laughs> I had feature, to eat, yeah, I know. I had to I had to eat crow about that and, mm-hmm. and that was like a, a running joke on the show. Yep. Those people as soon as uh, Musk's bid came in, that's how they cleaned ship. They they were all gone. Yeah. So if you if none of us know, mm-hmm. but looking at it from that lens, and, and Agrawal was not someone that any of us expected to take the top job. I mean, he had no profile and, before. So what if? The, the play here was, look, this is a shit show. Uh, someone wants to come in and take us out. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's a mercy killing, right? And let's get everybody out of here that's going um, <laughs> that, to that's gonna, uh, still complain what, like about 7, that sort of thing. There's people that work there? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine it being like a mercy hey, killing like at that level. Chris, <laughs> there's, yes. there's a lot of money involved. And I mean, you know. I mean, that, that's what I'm looking at. And that's why like the mind, you know, races and, and it moves to speculation, right? Like you can imagine like this N dimensional chess where somehow like, you know, Elon endorsed it. Like this is like the fanfic of, you know, social media kind of catastrophes where Elon and Jack Dorsey and Mudge are somehow conspiring to like, you know, basically sink and tank Twitter because Jack Dorsey is angry at Elliot management I, I, and wants to get back at like, but, you know, but the it's stock not, market. I'm not saying they, they're, they're, they're going to sink it. I think the plan was, is like, this is a really good deal. We're all going to walk away with nice bonuses. The shareholders will be happy. Like, let's just get this out the door, um, to, which is where we should Sorry, probably. Are you talking about the Musk the, the, uh, acquisition or which yeah. part are you talking about? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or anybody that would take it. Oh, for <laughs> At sure. That yeah. Point, no, that's I, what I'm yeah, saying. I agree. Right. Yeah. They're like, okay. Yeah. Let's let, let, let's like Uncle Elon take it and then we're going to GTFO. Right. Exactly. So, okay. Uh, Kevin, let's talk about the Musk angle about this. Um, on the one hand, does it, it it sort of plays into to Elon and his lawyer's argument, which is that this is a shit show. But then at the same time, um, it's almost like uh, what um, the whistleblower is saying kind of confirms that the monetizable daily active users, which is all that really matters, is kind of on the up and up and credible. So where do you come down on this? Does does this whistleblower, obviously they're going to p- depose him, obviously they're going to use this. I don't think they're not going to use this, but um, does it make it more likely that Elon's case is stronger now or not, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, they're already using this. Um, you know, there was a, a hearing yesterday and some filings made uh, that already referenced the, the whistleblower suit. But, um, so, a couple things. On the Daily, the monetizable daily active users, the MDAO. Um, it this the suit is framed like, oh, this is like 
the big thing. It's going to, um, it's going to, you know, expose the problems around MDAO. Um, but there's, uh, much is essentially saying that, that the numbers are right. And, uh, he's saying that the incentives are right for people to keep spam out of the MDAO numbers. Now, again, you know, the way that this works is there's a, a cross section of users that Twitter looks at and they remove, uh, you know, spam or bots from those cross sections. And that is essentially how they get their, uh, number that there's, you know, fewer than 5% of, uh, spam in, you know, the number of uh, people, users that advertisers can make money off of. Um, so much is actually saying that that is basically right. And that is the hinge of Elon's argument, right? Um, Elon, of course, could have dove into this before he tried to take over the company. Um, and so even I'm skeptical that even if the number is higher than that, um, and, and Elon can prove it unless it is significantly, significantly higher, uh, like, like over 50% or something like that, then uh, he really has a case um, because that would be a material adverse effect and that could blow up the whole thing. I mean, are, are we able to speculate or just you know think about what the reaction from the Chancery Court was today and what that leads to? I mean, because I thought that the reaction was like pretty measured and it might give some indication as to like what they're willing to allow in terms of you know the discovery process and the arguments on both sides. And they like, I mean, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from like this this you know case happening. It seems like they might want to just get it done quickly. They do, um, and and so what what Musk's side wanted was. Uh, basically every piece of data that uh, Twitter had over the last two and a half years. And uh, Twitter said, no, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the judge in the case uh, said that it was absurd, uh, the amount of information that they were uh, asking for. And what they settled on was the like 9,000 or so uh, user data uh, profiles that Twitter actually relies on for the last quarter for the MDAO um, and all, all the data around those 9,000 users. So um, fine, you know, like that, that is a reasonable thing. Uh, and, and they had, they had said that they would be able to put that together in, you know, 10 days or something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, so far uh, the judge is trying to keep a lid on uh, all of the data requests from the Musk side, uh, which go in all different kinds of directions. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes a little hard to follow how it would actually impact what they're trying to argue. Um, you know, it, it, it does seem like it's, it's a lot of, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get subpoenas for, um, I think, uh, close to three dozen people. They got one, they got cave on. Um, but, uh, and, and the rest, I, I think, are still under seal, so it's not really clear who they're asking for. Um, but they're they're asking for a lot, and, and they're trying to, you know, if you were on his side, you would do that too. You would just ask for a lot of information, see what you can get, and then try to build a case out of it. So, I I think, and you said this in your piece, um, 
I think in the end, what this really does is raise the odds that uh, Twitter just settles. Because as I've been positing, uh, I think that this was um, a mercy killing, and they were all hoping hoping that this was going to be quick and easy and and whatever. Um, and and as you say, I think at this point, it already was Twitter's big incentive to just get this over with. Uh, and now even more so. And also I think, you know, Elon is going to make enough noise that <sighs> now the question is what's going to happen to Twitter, uh, after this. But, um, uh, Kevin, thanks for, um, thanks for coming on and talking about it. Your piece, which, um, you know, we'll link to in the show notes and, and is linked right now in the space, um, kind of got into more detail than I was even able to do this week. Um, so I appreciate it. And, um, let's, let's keep an eye on this one and, and see if we're all right about this. Yeah. Thanks Kevin. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on. Chris, I, um, I think I said, uh, this week that, um, Mudge was a bigger deal than I knew. Did you, were you aware of him and, and his sort of fame in yeah. the, um, so, you know, I, I, I was aware of the, the cult of the, um, sacred cow or whatever. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that I encountered, you know, him and, you know, Kevin Mitnick and a lot of these like 2,600 type hackers, um, in the past. I mean, he's been active since like the nineties and was one of the first hacktivists. So I certainly, you know, when I was in the identity spaces uh, with OpenID and OAuth and learning all those things, um, no doubt, you know, I was sort of adjacent aware of him. But for example, I didn't realize that he'd been like recognized by the CIA, the White House, the U.S. Right. Army, okay. the Office of Secretary of Defense. And he got the so, Exceptional uh, Public Service Award, which is the highest medal of honor available to civilian non-career officials. So, I mean, dude's legit. Not, not only that, uh, go down a rabbit hole, Google around for this guy. You'll see him. He, I believe it's 1998. He, he testified uh, before Congress. And if you can imagine what a hacker looked like in 1998, oh, yeah. a hacker dude, so he looks like that. I mean, he's, so he's, he's sort of like, you know, he's become more, uh, like clean cut. Whereas like Jack Dorsey sort yeah. of went full well, right, on right. Like hacker Cause, mode. Cause there's pictures of him with like Bill Clinton shaking hands and stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, he looks like a guy from 1998. That's a hacker dude. But this is, this is the point I wanted to make to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I have commented before that, that shy guy in the corner that you met at a, at a meetup in 2004, 20 years later is a billionaire. It's so <laughs> funny to me that the hacker that is wearing, you know, nose rings with long hair and tattoos and is shaking hands with Bill Clinton in 1998 is the, uh, uh, chief security officer of a major social media platform 20 years later but well that, you know, people that's... can evolve and you know they like i, I don't know like the, the sense that i got was like much had options and coming to twitter was an opportunity to continue sort of his hacktivist streak that you know he believed jack dorsey to be genuine in his desire to one support mudge and to you know kind of clean house and i just feel like there was like this institutional inertia to, to really not embrace the things that, you know, he was trying to say, I don't know. I, you know, I will say that some of the, the folks who are, who are heading up or leading up uh, parts of uh, the Twitter security org are people that I worked with at Google before. Um, and I know them to be people of, you know, strong integrity and they do a lot of work and they're very uh, respectable in their own right. So I think it's a, it's a mixed picture. Um, I, I think what this complaint, at least to me, the, these, the biggest questions are really about Agarwal and what his ultimate role, you know, is 
historically mm-hmm. and going forward. And as a CEO, you know, he, he just Twitter needs something, you know, of, a, of kind of like an, an enlightenment to get its on, you know, its its course back. And it feels like it's really kind of you know dovetailing into or fishtailing into oblivion yeah. in this very. But it, 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 oblivion way. is oblivion is the right word because they did have their renaissance and it got yeah. decapped by all yeah. this. And that's God right. only knows what's going to happen. Twenty twenty two is going to be a shit year for Twitter. That's for sure. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using Using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. So my segue for you my segue for you was that you used to work with and yes. people that you know tangentially and so we're going to shift away um from from twitter to mm-hmm. i don't know um uh how well you know our next guest but um uh i believe you worked with him or or people uh i didn't work with kylan nope so, yes. so this is the first time that i met kylan um however um Ilya, which is his co-founder for inworld um is someone who i i interact with interacted with before and you know it, so I, I, I co-founded a um, conversational um, artificial intelligence company. And um, during, you know, this is like 2016 era, I was like super excited about conversational interfaces and bots and, and that whole thing. And um, Ilya had started API.ai, I believe, which then was, God, was, you know, 
Colin's going to know the, the, the history and the backstory much better than me, but there was, there was uh, involvement with Facebook and with Google and all the rest. But Kylan, hello. Welcome yeah. to the show. Great to meet you. Thank you. Would, would love for you to just say hello and then maybe give us a little of that, that background um, and then we'll get into it. Sure. Yeah, I can fill in a little bit. Yeah, nice to meet. I'm, uh, I'm Kylan, uh, co-founded uh, Inworld AI. Um, yeah, so uh, the, most of our team does come from a Google background. I was previously at DeepMind um, and most of our team sort of comes from similar conversational AI backgrounds. So Ilya um, and Mike, my uh, two co-founders, they previously were part of founding API.ai, um, which was basically the kind of one of the first sort of conversational AI building platforms was acquired by Google, became Google Dialogflow, and is now like the foundation for Google Assistant and a lot of other sort of related products. Um, and so that's maybe sort of how you encountered uh, him and, and in that space. And now I think it's the largest conversational AI platform on the market. So, um, you know, our, our team sort of got started and got their chops on what I would call like that old school uh, style of conversation AI. And now we've uh, moved on to a bit of a new venture. So, uh, Am I hearing a bit of Canadianism in your, in your voice? <laughs> you, you are, yeah. I'm, I'm that, from that, Vancouver, Canada. Oh, yeah. Vancouver. Okay. I was going to say Montreal because there's a lot of uh, conversation AI stuff there. <laughs> now, don't, don't turn it to French, please. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, well, you know, before we actually get dig into uh, InWorld, I did want to just, I guess, get a, a sense from you on where, like, what is the state of play on the conversational AI space? You know, I feel like there's been a number of pivots this year, um, specifically from Amazon and Google, of course, some of the, the big majors in the space, you know, both mm-hmm. towards and away from, uh, like, their conversational platforms. Um, it seems to me that you know, Amazon continues to push pretty hard uh, in terms of bringing developers into the Alexa ecosystem and utilizing the technologies um, for, for conversational experiences. But Google, I don't know, if, if there's any um, sense from what my little stupid puck that gives me access to the Google Assistant in my my shower um, suggests, yeah. is that Google is not focused on that platform anymore. And basically I have, uh, it's not just a puck, it's a brick. So what is your sense for just like the world of conversational AI and where is that at? And then we'll get into what you guys are working on within world. Yeah, great, great, um, great question. So effectively, I think conversational AI really started, you know, even like before Siri with this really old school rules based approach, which is like when I said, hey, like specifically, hey, with no capitals, I got a specific response because I've hard coded in those rules. Um, and then you sort of had like, you know, early machine learning and supervised learning where you could learn, okay, things like hey tend to be responded with oh hey how are you doing too right and so that sort of was like the next step um and then you saw sort of like bert from google and a lot of these things come out which was really kind of allowing the machine learning to handle the understanding part and then you could attach basically these sort of responses in the back end of that and that was really what dialogflow did and then sort of in the last few years you saw that with gpt3 and a lot of generative models coming out the actual ability to for the models not only to understand the language, but actually then construct or like a representative response has exploded. Um, and and I think there's frankly been, like, so GBT3 came out in 2019, kind of really changed the market. And, and what actually happened there was there's, you know, the machine learning community, especially in natural language, was going around to lots of different architectures. And then you had something come out called the transformer. And then basically what OpenAI figured out is you could just scale up the compute of this thing and get really better results with every bit of more compute that you threw at it. Um, and frankly, it took a while, I think, for a lot of the large companies to sort of start shifting focus to that um, and really realize the, the opportunity there. Um, and I think a lot of the reason for that was that it's, it's frankly very risky. So the way that the generative models work is you basically give it a response and based on like the statistics of language and the, the um, information that it's trained on, which is usually like a corpus of the entire internet, it gives you sort of a reasonable response. And you can imagine a company like Google or Amazon is 
Now, that's very risky for it. So they basically stuck with the old school approach, which was, you know, this, this idea of like these pre-canned responses to particular sets. And, sorry, just to unpack when you say risky, you mean sort of reputationally harmful because the Internet is full of shit. Yeah, so there's, there's two interesting things here. It's both reputationally risky because it's, yes, it could say unsafe things. Yep. Also, if, if Google or Amazon regurgitate something that is someone else's IP, for example, ah, okay. um, that is also another form of risk, right? So it's like who owned that information that the, that the model was trained on? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that OpenAI kind of got away with because I think they're like a research institution and they were at the mm-hmm. time smaller. And, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so there was a lot of reasons that they didn't do that. Google, I, you know, I know a lot of these companies have explored this. Um, and I think there is going to be steps in this. Like you did see Google come out earlier this year with Lambda, which is an example of this. You know, Facebook. That's, has that's the, the conscientious or the what is it called? The <laughs> yes, the sentient. The self sentient. sentient AI, thank you. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm going to put it in air quotes. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes with my hands. Um, that's right. <laughs> you know that. Um, but uh, but what I think is happening now is that whole area has matured. So that was 2019. You know, we're almost like we're three years later. I think roughly from when GPT three came out. And I think now you're seeing a lot of these companies kind of back away from investments in that old school tech. So, you know, why am I going to invest in Google Assistant when really it's the voice interface on top of Google search? That's really what Assistant is. I I think what you'll start to see over the next few years is because of the invest, the massive investments, let's be clear, that are being made in these large language models. um, You're probably going to see a bit of a pause now in innovations on some of these old school technologies like Mm -hmm. the Google Assistant, Amazon Alexa. And then in the next few years, sort of an explosion of new technology, like new applications that are much more natural, much more generative, um, and ultimately powered by sort of this new this new wave of generative tech. And and I think it's just taken a while for the safety and for the IP issues, for the ability to, for example, reference materials. Like where did you get that information? Like those are hard technical problems that research teams are working on. That but if you look at you know the the academia, it's 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 really kind of exploded. Like, and, and like so many AI researchers are shifting specifically into this area. So I, I, I presume in, in the next few years, you might get another version of your Google assistant. That's a lot smarter. Uh, yeah, well, I hope that stupid little puck, which I probably got for free, you know, ends up actually being useful again, but it seems like anyways, we'll get into that. Um, so one of the, the, the trends that you're just describing sounds a little bit like, um, or at least hmm, one, of, one of the, the challenges or, or headwinds has been that there hasn't really been, transparent AI or essentially AI that is able to explain mm-hmm. itself as you just alluded to. Um, I yep. understand. And I think I, I read this about Lambda perhaps, or, you know, about the sentient bot um, that uh, um, increasingly AI is able to explain how it sort of arrives at an outcome or a conclusion or whatever it happens to be. And I guess what I'm, what I wanting to understand is whether or not that allows for like the larger <laughs> companies to embrace these things more effectively, because once wait, the wait, AI, wait, wait. what, Yes. It can explain how it comes to it, or the the researchers like no, no, it, 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 it explains itself. You ask it, mm. like, why do you think that, or mm. maybe "think" is not the right word, but and you know, well, of, am I wrong can, about that? That I, yeah. I thought mm-hmm. that a lot of the problem recently with AI stuff was that it was working, but. We kind of didn't know how. Am I wrong about that? No, that's what I'm saying. So what I was <laughs> saying is that now there's this whole sort of thrust from research and academia um, to make more trustworthy, transparent AI that you know essentially can explain how it arrives at outcomes and answers. And so mm-hmm. you that allows you to either address the model or you know change the weights such that now it becomes, if not more predictable, a little bit safer. Kylan, tell me where I have that wrong. 
Yeah, no, no. So generally, this this whole region is called like explainable AI, um, and it really depends yes, on. Yes, that's what I did. Sorry. Yeah. So so effectively, the the field is you know, how do you take a neural so. You know, when you had really old school AI, right, which was rules based, it was easy to explain. Then you went to neural networks and people were like, oh, these things are really cool, but like, I have no idea how it works. In the same way, like, I can't explain to you right now how I'm right. generating, generating speech based on how my brain is firing signals. Um, right. And so there's been a lot of work that's gone into this question of like, how do I explain that? So I would say you're, you're both right in the sense that, so neural networks are still very hard to explain. So when you ask like Lambda or, mm-hmm. you know, R models or any of these things, right, that like, oh, how did you come to that answer? It will, give you the reasoning. It will give you like human level logical reasoning as if you ask human. But in the same way that like I can't explain how my, you know, my different cortexes in my brain are firing right now, mm-hmm. I could explain to you like why I'm telling you this answer, right? You ask me a question. I have a certain experience. I like have this, like, you know, I worked at DeepMind. Those things are why I'm giving you this answer. But I can't give you the technical answer as to like what computations are mm-hmm. happening. And that's effectively what's happening in the models. So they've, they've got a lot further in terms of like, okay, if the, if the, Thing says, you know, elephants um, are only on two continents. And you say, oh, why is that the case? And you say, oh, they, they tend to be on the Indian, like, or they, you know, they tend to be in Asia and they tend to be in Africa. And then you say, why is that? And you, and it could keep going down this reasoning. You say, well, where did you find that information? Oh, I found it on this Wikipedia link, you know, these kinds of things. It can do that. And that's basically because they've added on sort of separate architectures and, and research to this, these core language models um, that help with that. But, you know, Brian's probably still right in the sense that. You know, you, the model's not going to be able to say, oh, you know, I I assigned like a weight of 0.3 to this code. And this, and <laughs> right. I, it, it's, I, I think that there are ways that you can visualize that and get it through now. But I think in a natural language context, it's still very hard to do. Well, I mean, it, and honestly, if you ask any teenager, like, why do they run that red light, right? They're going to come up with all sorts of answers anyway. So it's not that much worse than the state of the art. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you know what? I want I want to come to this at the end. In terms of like where AI is going, but like I, I, I'm still fascinated by the idea that it's a black box to even the people that are doing it. Mm. Um, but so uh, let let me ask you this: so if you guys are successful, as I'm, I'm sure you're going to be, um, essentially what we're talking about is, uh, I mean, a, a really reductive way to say it is to <laughs> turn. Uh, NPCs into more. Wait, 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 wait. You, you, you're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're we're we're, we're going to get there, but I think we have to go through a little bit more of a journey. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which and 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 Kylan, you know, actually, I'll, I'll step back a little bit. But what I'm, what I'm kind of getting to, or what I'm sort of wanting, you know, one for like the listener to understand is kind of like where we've been, what the state of the art is with regards to known voice assistants, because that's how a lot of people are interacting with these things. And then I kind of want to dovetail that, you know, sort of just by pointing to previous conversations that we had with folks like Matthew Ball about the metaverse and about places where you're spending a lot of time, you know, in game with, you know, characters that you might encounter. And then to sort of start to think about how you can blend aspects of these, you know, kind of procedural, you know, worlds let's say a game you know that sort of has like you know a beginning middle and an end and sort of an outcome and bosses and challenges and things like that with what are kind of non-deterministic exploratory realms that are created through artificial intelligence you know we've also had conversations conversations recently about generative ar art um mm-hmm, you know whether mm-hmm. that's like you know dolly or for example today i launched stable diffusion on product hunt um, or mid journey yeah and you have these amazing kind of other examples that are quite visual and you're able to sort of you know wrap your mind or I guess your eyes around that. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, how's that happening? Now imagine that same kind of 
like technology that is so, I mean, it's, it's not even that it passes the uncanny valley. It's just that it's like a new form of expression being applied mm-hmm. to conversation and to character story and to background. Exactly. So this, I'm sorry, what was it? It was an E word that you used, uh, ex- not explanatory AI. Oh, explainable, a- explainable AI. Okay. So that's the thing that I wanted to point at, right? Once the artificial intelligence starts to be able to sort of describe its reasoning, then you can mm-hmm. start to actually inquire about itself, like mm-hmm. what it cares about, what its goals are, what it wants to achieve, which to me gets me into the mindset of, of Westworld, which uh, <laughs> I have to admit I'm behind on the season. But uh, no, wait, wait, Chris, Chris, yeah, now what? you're jumping. I, 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 I'm not trying to like steal his thunder, but I'm just trying to say like, so let's, let's just like put all those things kind of, you know, on, on the mood board, so to speak. And, sure. and then, okay, Kylan, like, t- like take us back maybe like to, I say like you guys started, I think July, 2020 or something around those times. Talk about maybe like, uh, yeah leaving like deep mind and um you know dialogue flow and kind of being in the, the belly of the, some of these big beasts and then moving mm-hmm. off to, to work on your own stuff like i'm just curious why you guys went in the direction that you went and what you guys were considering at that time yeah awesome so yeah i uh so i was i was at deep mind um before this i was basically leading product for generative models and conversational ai so there was basically a point at which you know gpt3 came out and <laughs> There's kind of this question like, oh, what do we do uh, in response to this? Uh, and so I was working across Google, basically taking DeepMind tech and integrating into Google products. So you can imagine across mm-hmm. with language like search assistant, Google Cloud. Um, and so there I met um, Mike, our current CTO, um, who was leading AI and ML at Google Cloud Conversational AI. And, and we just, you know, we, we met and had a few projects working together and got along well. Uh, at that time, around that same time, Ilya had basically, you know, mm-hmm gone, stepped out of the Google sphere and was, uh, you know, kind of just thinking what to do next. I think he was maybe in Hawaii at that time. <laughs> and, uh, and basically, so you can kind of think about Mike and I were deep in the space of this, like I, I especially, so Mike was still working on dialogue flow and this, this stuff. I was trying to, you know, work on these sort of large language models and think through like, basically what is the next step beyond GPT-3 and how do we productionize that? And Billy was, I think, just kind of looking around and being, like, oh, people are spending a lot of time in these virtual worlds. So you have games, immersive realities, these like you know these virtual influencers online. It's like this bizarre trend that's going towards this. Let's be clear: there's no term metaverse. Metaverse existed as something from Neil Stevenson, yeah. but not as like a thing at that time. Um, and so basically, what happened was you know Ilya Ilya was like you know we had this conversation on a platform before. We used it on like smartphones and things, but ultimately people are not you know that was the big trend at that time was the transition of smartphones around like you know in the in the early 2010s uh, like like basically after the iPhone in 2008. And so the new trend was toward these immersive worlds, basically not necessarily just saying VR, but, you know, video games, like how many kids spend their time in Fortnite, all these different areas. And so he was like, okay, if people are spending time in these worlds, it's actually more natural to have a conversation with a non-human character in these worlds than it is on like a smartphone. Like how often do you actually use Siri real life, right? Yeah, like totally. versus just use an app on your phone. Yeah. Right. And so it was like, it actually became sort of like a more natural place. So like if the goal is to sort of, you know, say, how do we have this relationship with AI? It's actually a more natural place to have it in these immersive worlds. But, you know, Ilya, frankly, like in, invented a lot of stuff that had to do with that, like sort of previous generation of these conversational AI and then tapped Mike and was like, hey, you know, I think, is this possible? Um, and then Mike tapped me and was like, you know, we need to build this. Uh, and so at that point, we basically, that was, that was actually only, only just over a year ago um, that, uh, that we technically started. So it's moved, it's moved pretty quickly. And uh, so a lot of our team came on. They had previously been at Google and helped build the previous company. Um, you know, we've got other folks that have joined us since. 
Um, and that's really sort of how it's all come together. And it's been, uh, it's also been sort of pulling a lot of other people from, I think, related industries. So John Gaeta, our chief, chief creative officer, was the Academy Award producer for The Matrix. Um, and so, like, we've got to, like, bring in a lot of really cool creative from the creative space as well who have had us really think through, you know, what will these future experiences look like? How will AI fit into this? And if people spend time in these virtual worlds or even, frankly, if these AI come into the real world, you know, what does that look like? Um, and that's really what sparked, I guess, the um, the whole kind of process. So I'll stop there. Well, it, all right. So this this is what I was going to say. The, the reason that uh, uh, Chris turned me on to to what you what you all are doing, and the thing that blew my mind is again, I don't want to be dismissive of what we've seen already, but you, we've kind of alluded to it. Like, sure, the first time you use Alexa to dial up a song, you're like, oh my god, that works great. But then, like, there's been limits, and and sure, it works great in call center settings, and and sure, even even GPT three and things like that. It's cool and mind blowing that you can, you know, ask for a certain picture in a certain style, and it's 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 better than you can even imagine. I'm not, I, believe me, I'm not saying that that's not amazing. Mm-hmm. The thing that you guys are getting at that. It's 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 the first time that I was like, oh, I can see how this will transform something, and mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. could transform gaming in this way. Gaming is still on rails in the sense that even in a giant open world um, where you can go anywhere and do anything, and the graphics are amazing, and you, you look over here and there's this thing and that thing, you're still on rails in terms of what the game wants you to do, what you're capable of doing. And that's because, again, most of the game is dumb, and you're the only smart thing in the game. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that really blew my mind when Chris turned me on to this was like, oh, I can see how gaming could be completely revolutionized if the game is not dumb. If in these open worlds, the other characters that you're interacting with are, I I mean, to what degree they can be, totally smarter or whatever, but smarter than they are now, that would blow open the sort of storytelling you could do, the sort of experience you could have. Like, like this I, is, let me, let me summarize yeah. for you, Brian. Like, it's like, so, and, and, and Kylan, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the Disney accelerator and what that experience yeah. is like, because to Brian's point, what he's really trying to say is when he watches an MCU film, he would love to instead not just watch it, but after the credits roll. And of course there's always some after scene to, you know, walk up to, you know, some of the characters and have a conversation with them because the whole point of what your tool does, as I understand it now, again, this is where it gets maybe a little hand wavy, but yet you guys, I think have the credentials to actually, you know, produce something that's reasonable in the space is you walk up to them and they actually know or have some sense of their own story. They have some sense of the vectors that are determining yeah. their goals and their desires and their outcomes, which is, you know, again, why I mentioned Westworld. It's like the whole point is to understand what is the ultimate kind of intention of this character, this, this, uh, you know, non-player character that you're interacting with. What are they trying to achieve? What are they going to do to get there? What do they already know? What do they don't know? You know, what was the last conversation you had with them? Are they able to maintain state of some sort? Can they, you know, refer to that state in a subsequent conversation to give you some sense of like recall and also personalization? And that's where you understand why Disney would want to invest in this, because this is how you bring the metaverse of these spaces and these characters to life. Now, I don't, you know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead and I'm sort of, you know, <laughs> accelerating the, 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 the conversation, but like, I would love to just understand, like, 
uh, you know, obviously you, you can't share anything that's not, you know, like out there, but directionally, does this start to become a new type of creative discipline, a new type of world in which, you know, storytelling and, and you know, Brian's background is actually in film, that the way in which we you know, bring characters to life, not on, you know, screen per se, but on screens in these immersive environments starts to change because you're no longer just kind of scripting scenes, but you're scripting backstories and I guess prompts, if you will, uh, that yeah. give these characters like reasons to behave in certain ways that are somewhat more predictable. Yeah. So, so honestly, I think you kind of have to like the way we tell the story is if you think back to like the way that we've engaged with content for a long time, if you go way back, right, you have like this oral tradition of storytelling, which is ultimately, you know, people telling stories to each other. And if, you know, the kid asked the mom, you know, and then what did Achilles do on the ship? You know, she probably could just make something up and the whole story sort of adapted to that kid because she knew what he liked. But Basically, since, you know, we had old school theater basically starting you know, a few thousand years ago, especially starting with the printing press, content became a sort of one way stream. Right. So you had creators and then you had consumers and those consumers basically didn't get to decide. Maybe except with the exception of some goosebumps folks that I did love, um, you know, that they didn't really get to decide, like, how to engage with that content. It was basically pre-writ for them. Um, and that basically continued through film, uh, you know, even like early games, like side scrollers. There's not a whole lot that you could do there except for, you know, the jumping in this, it's ultimately this determinist experience that you as the consumer of that content don't feel in control of your experience. And I, I also have a side thought, which is, you know, what does that, what does that give you in terms of your thoughts or your conception of the world? Like if I don't feel like mm. I have agency in the world, you know, how does that yeah. change the way that I think that the world exists? And what does it mean as content starts to adapt to you as a person and actually opens up that agency and makes you realize, Oh, wait a second. Like, when I look out at this thing, these are all things that I can change. So I think that you started to see this in like the, you know, the end of the last century with like the very first MMO games, right? Where you had user generated content and you know, RPGs sort of exploding where you had more, you know, uh, attire and things that you could choose. Um, you know, you got to choose which Pokemon you had in your party and all these different things. And then sort of that, that continued. And I think over the last few years, what's happened is there's been this, I think it's tied to a lot of other social trends around like, you know, self-identification choices that we're able to make, you know, the lifestyles we're able to lead. And now all of a sudden people are like, I want to choose who I am in this game. I want to choose how I get like, and look how big these open world games have been. You know, Grand Theft Auto was obviously one of the early ones, but so many games now have adapted to this sort of open world sort of user driven way. And so I generally think you see this as well, just with the, you know, the, the event of, things like Roblox and Minecraft where kids are creating their own experiences, even Fortnite, right? Added on the sort of creation opportunity. And now though, for the first time, those characters that forever, you know, our favorite characters, I, I love all my Pixar movies. I also freaking love Marvel. And, but for the first time being able to have that actual interaction two way versus me just consuming it. However, the creator get it, you know, wanted to create it is, is a completely different experience. It's and changes how I engage with that content. And so that's, that's like ultimately, I think, what excites me. Um, sorry, Brian. Oh, I, I was going to say, but, but, but you're, you're, you're even describing it. You continue to describe it in terms of the, the user's experience. So if I am in a game and I talk, uh, I, I talk to uh, Buzz Lightyear in a game mm -hmm, or whatever, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he, he'll behave like Buzz Lightyear, or at least how I expect Buzz Lightyear to behave, and he'll react to me and, and change and adapt to how I am. But forget the user like this, this creates a different sort of storytelling because essentially we're, we're creating a platform where you, 
where the story itself is outside of the control of what even the creators intended at some point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, it's basically this emergent storytelling. So it's, you know, you, you know, we think about this a lot. Like you can imagine a game which is eventually filled with a population of characters that also have, have their relationships, their emotions. You know, our characters, for example, are able to remember your interactions. So if you go up to a shopkeeper and you're rude to them and you're mean to them one time and they're angry, they're actually going to give you like a worse price maybe the next time, right? And so then also they might tell another character. Now all of a sudden all these characters in the world sort of hate you. Um, and that sort of is a very weird dynamic, right? Where now, like, this is kind of the point of agency, though, right? <laughs> it's, it goes two ways. It's like, I am free to do whatever I want, but now there's these consequences. Because like you said, we have to now consider what is the character's experience and, like, how is that going to feed back into my experience as a player? Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's so many things that, like, you know, you can have, like, these branching paths for characters. Our characters have an internal emotional state. So if you get mad at them, you know, their facial expressions and gestures and voice and everything change. Um, and so, you know, you, it's like there, there is still that consideration of like, what is that experience for the user? But yeah, definitely. There is this constant evolving internal state of a character that, you know, especially in certain games, we can support a way where like that character can just continue going on. Right. And, and we've also thought about experiences where you could effectively just have two characters talking to each other for a while and, you know, they could, they could, they're, they could evolve in all these different types of directions of conversation and emotion. Um, right. And for, for, forget about players. You could sort of like the, the clockwork universe God theory, where it's just like you, you set up all the players in this universe and you wind it up and let it go and see where the story goes. Exactly. Exactly. And like, you know, we, we need to find the right outlet for that specific type of experience, but that's, that's it. Right. I mean, and that's sort of the vision we had of this future is, you know, if you hop into any of the, the so-called metaverses today, right, whether it's Roblox, Meta Horizon, um, Sandbox, they're pretty empty. And so you can imagine, you know, if these characters are populated in that world, it kind of, that world goes on without you. So you go Oh, in, shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. It, that, that's, that's great. So It's like Clubhouse, but jo- you're not there. And you come back and the conversations all have actually advanced. All the jokes that I've made about how dumb the meta metaverse has been so far because it's so empty and so vanilla. But if you walked into it and all of a sudden there was energy and activity going on, even though no one was there. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. 
Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and the fact that you could change it, right? So it's it's kind of like you know, if you walk into uh, you know a, a party and you just throw like some paint on, into the room, right, and it splatters everyone, you just walk out. That's going to change the rest of the night for those people. If you came into that party or to that house or like met those people later on, they're going to remember that. And so you can imagine like also just being able to have those types of experiences where like you have this ongoing this ongoing world that lives beyond you. You influence it, and then you walk away. It, that's kind of what I mean of this, like, it, it changes this concept of agency and also changes that concept of, I guess, like, the uh, the persistence of the experience, right? Like, people often talk about, like, persistence as, like, this thing in these immersive realities, but mainly what I think they mean is, is you know, that it, it exists across time and you can go back and see the same chair. But, like, what if the dynamics, what if the actual life and the evolution of that world continued beyond, um, you know, when you, when you were in there? And I think that's sort of the, the magic of this. Well, I, think, I mean, persistence in that state or in that sense, I think refers perhaps to statefulness in the sense that, you know, you're not sort of, you know, booting up the cartridge, like every time you go to play the game or enter into the space, it's that there's a continuation. So even if the chair has yeah. moved, there could be a reason or a backstory for why the chair had moved because things were happening while you were not there. So there's yeah. essentially kind of a like, and that's, it seems to be like the metaverse concept is that there is this other world that is constant. It's, it's like, you know, I, I was in New York last week. I'm not in New York anymore, but at least I have some idea that New York still exists because I'm pretty sure Brian is there. And as long as he's you there, well, I don't know that. Look, I can be in my own uh, simulation right now. I can be talking to the simulation Brian, which has statefulness. And so who the hell, you know, I don't know. You're a disembodied voice. You're coming through this weird black mirror device that I have. Anyways, point being, I, you know, the simulation of New York is ongoing even while I'm not there. And there will probably be construction projects that will have finished that were underway when I was there last week that are actually the completion of the projects that I saw, you know, then. So that happening in the metaverse is a pretty fascinating and like amazing idea that there could actually be progress in things that are occurring at a normal rate of change. And that that could be, if not personalized to you, certainly part of the entire metaverse experience, which I mean, frankly, like from a conversation perspective, is kind of fascinating, right? Because, you know, you can come in and then start a whole dialogue or conversation, perhaps with one of these NPCs about the changes that have occurred. And the NPCs having been there, seen, seen, you know, having seen the change could actually tell you about it in theory. Yeah, that's exactly. And I mean, even if you think about just like scoping it down to even a one-to-one interaction is, you know, when we catch up with a friend, how you often would spend, like, if you said you had a 30 minute chat with a friend, you could spend the first 10 minutes of that just being like, what did you do today? You know, what did you do this weekend? 
And if you currently like, talk to a chatbot, it's like they might be able to make that up. But imagine if you talk to that character, you know, fairly often, and there's actually this consistent story and there's this background. And even if like even if that doesn't actually exist, right? It, it's it mm-hmm. fills in sort of reality right. for you because it's sort of it, otherwise it's this thing just has in this like disembodied vacuum. And so you're right. And like all our characters do, they have personalities and backgrounds and knowledge, and that knowledge is updated. Um, and so it's it's it is like a it yeah, it's it's like creation. <laughs> so okay. it's a it's a bizarre experience when you actually start experiencing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a couple, like, I have several different questions and interactions to go on. I also want to be respectful of your time. But um, that said, while I have you here, um, I, I, I did pin a tweet. And uh, in that tweet, which is in the so-called Nest, which if you, you know, see that, you know, it has, has an interface from Westworld, um, where the, you know, for dramatic effect, of course, you know, while whatever, you're sort of encountering one of the hosts, the... Um, uh, whatever the, the system administrators, let's call them, are like, you know, tweaking and moving, you know, the uh, character aspects or attributes um, of, of, of the, the hosts. And InWorld has a very similar type of interface. So my question is really about, and I'm, I'm not trying to, again, cause you to reveal anything that should be known, but to what degree does Westworld get this wrong? Like, I think Westworld is, is so useful as a you know kind of direction of a sci-fi fiction uh, you know sort of future um, and oftentimes science fiction can lead the way in helping us to understand and predict how we might solve some of these problems when you watch that what do you see and think oh man that is so wrong and what do you see and you're like oh actually i'm gonna put that in the next version of the app <laughs> uh in all honesty you know i there's nothing i would say is is wrong in the sense i think mm. that at least the like frankly everything i see in westworld is like scarily maybe possible, right? You, <laughs> I was you, afraid. It, 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 I'm also excited that you might say that. Not now, but <laughs> you know, I think that honestly, what I would say today is, is some of the hardest parts are like locomotion and robotics and these kinds of things, right? So mm-hmm. you know, actually, the brain is like what we focus on, right? Oh, no, sorry, and, 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 I'm, and I'm like I'm taking away like the the like the aspects of moving the body and like the muscular structures and things like sure. that. Like, you know, I'm thinking yeah. more if this were, if Westworld were actually conducted in a, in, you know, in sort of a visual simulation, um, yep. like, like, um, the internal Ro- personal narratives. Of, yeah. Of like Roblox. Yeah. If Roblox were the platform or unity or something like that, to what degree yep. could you achieve a Westworld style experience? Oh, we could, <laughs> we could like, Oh, I've got that not, running on my laptop right now. Not the same, but like very close to it today. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, I guess what I mean is like, frankly, I'm not, I can't say, Oh, it's not possible. Or these, I can't poke too many holes. I, you know, maybe the way that they have it is probably too simple in the way that the tech works. Mm. And frankly, their interface is kind of ugly. Is what I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, <time>. um <laughs> but in general, so like for an example, even you know, for the tweet that you pinned, yeah. like literally what's happening in the emotion engine is you actually have a real time state of the character. That's like the, basically just a bunch of numbers that are consistently being updated in real time. Yeah. And the emotion like side mm-hmm. is basically like the default state of the character. So you can kind of think about this mm-hmm. as like, you know, some people are between like a seven and a 10. They tend to be very happy. Some people like a three to a five. They tend to be sort of sadder. And that's basically setting the like default state of the character. And then you can think about the personality as basically how that default state is updated based on what's experienced. Mm-hmm. And we all have this, right? It's like we all respond. It's like if you get mad at the rock versus you get mad at, you know, um, uh, Ariana Grande, they're going to respond very differently based on the personality you have. It's like the movie Inside. You know, you have like different yeah, triggers yeah. and yeah. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Totally. And, and then you also have things like, so what you see on you, you have like fluidity. So, you know, some people's emotions are very mercurial. They're changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Not. And like the, the emotion engine really does contain all that and is really able to hold all that. 
Um, and then we drive, for example, animations and gestures and changes in voice and changes in content of speech, all based on that. So it, it really is sort of like, you know, this, this um, I don't want to say a one-to-one, but it's very much inspired by how the human brain works. And frankly, when I look at the, the Westworld interface, I'm like, yeah, it's, like maybe they have too many knobs there. Like, that, like clearly that's like the advanced version that most people would never be able to use. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think we're all that far off. Okay, so I've, I've, I have one more thing, and I, I know Brian's got a question. Um, yeah. You know, I think, like, well, I'll just make a statement, and then I'll, I'll ask my question. Like, this this to me could be, like, such a revolution in terms of education. You know, if you were mm-hmm. to imagine actually, like, going back in time in history, you know, I watched all the John Adams uh, movies that, that were on, I forget what it was on, maybe HBO. Um, and it was just, like, okay, so interesting, right? And to, and to be able to go in and then add this layer, you know, where you have historical accuracy, or at least, you know, told by certain people from history, Um you know, built into the characters and now you can ask them like, why did you do this? Or what did you see or whatever? Then you can actually inspect, you know, those, those moments in time from a very different perspective. But so, so my question though, is actually kind of about the competitive market. You know, I sort of asked you, and I think you might've dodged a little bit, uh, the question about uh, Disney. Um, my question mm-hmm. is, is actually oh, yeah. about Apple and Pixar um, because in 2019 they acquired a company called Pullstring. And I know the the founder of, of Pullstring and what seemed to be the case at the time, and I don't really know what's happened to them since, because, you know, it's Apple, um, you know, is that they could have been used to improve Siri and, you know, its ability to, to hold conversations. But I would imagine that as, again, I guess going back to the, the creative side of this, that Pixar could use this technology as well as Disney to actually, you know, investigate characters, to, you know, coach the characters to behave in a certain way. And even from a, you know, I don't know, like a film or a movie or whatever kind of perspective, you could... I don't know, conduct an entire environment with these characters like this. How much does this become a, a creative tool like that versus one that's just built for, you know, sort of, you know, multiplayer or single player games? Oh, we, we really don't think about it, frankly, as a, as a game development tool solely. Mm, it just okay. happens to be the use case that resonates with most people. Got it. Um, we, we really, we call it like a creative suite for basically building these AI virtual or mm. AI personalities. And I'm like things like education, as you mentioned, are sort of like, you know, frankly, top of mind. And I, we can dig into that, but you know, when you, when you think about Disney and, and Pixar, and like Disney is, and like I will come back to that, right? Disney is a character first company. Almost everything that you do, I was actually at Disneyland last week. Uh, you know, and you go in there and it's, and it's all characters, you know, yeah. and it's, it's all characters. You watch their shows, it's like, it's all really just driven by the Marvel shows, the Star Wars shows, your classic Disney movies. And, you know, it's still that one way interaction. And so being able to sort of, you know, one, bring those to life is, is definitely something, you know, of interest. And then there's also this general question of, you know, how can you, per, for example, extend that to allow uh, either consumers to influence their own characters or, or create their own experiences? And, you know, there is actually applications, you know, related to learning and, and education and these areas as well that you can imagine, you know, how could you extend something like your favorite character and actually turn it into a functional thing that might serve as like a tutor, for example, or, you know, fulfill, fulfill yeah, like, something like that. Way better than like the Waze voice that you can like, you know, turn on for your, your driving directions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so... That's, that's sort of the interest there. And, and there's definitely like, it is a creative tool. That is ultimately what we're creating here. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, you can go into the, you know, um, the Dolly or um, yeah. Stable Diffusion and, and create an image, really what we're creating is a way for anyone. We're kind of lowering that bar to create amazing characters ultimately, right? And so like if anybody goes onto our, our studio, like literally, you know, anybody with, that can write, uh, can write, create a character, right? That, it, it, it is that easy. And so it kind of lowers that ability to actually create these amazing characters. And we think that also opens up the door for a lot of new applications because game developers, you know, have been doing this for a long time, but let's be clear, you know, educators 
you know, brand brand ambassadors, all these kinds of people haven't been doing this. And so it really is ultimately moving towards this suite to create these characters and then integrate them into any experience that is, is as easy as possible. And, you know, Polestring was actually related, uh, the, the company that you mentioned that was um, acquired by Apple. It was actually very similar to like Dialogflow um, and uh, the previous platform. And so, you know, those things obviously did make their way into a lot of other applications. But I see that, you know, what we're building hopefully sort of is just like the, the 10x or the next evolution on top of that. And hopefully, you know, empowers a lot more amazing experiences versus what Siri and these things are able to do just because it's it's that much more powerful. And and those those real world applications, especially education, are the ones that really kind of like motivate me the most because I think that's what we'll have. Like I, I think about it, you know, we're not... We're not that far off from, frankly, having like really good tutors. But I think, you know, in a few years, you could imagine a place like, why can't everybody have like a Harvard professor actually at mm-hmm. their fingertips on their phone who's actually able to chat with them, remember, you know, what they just chatted about? And I think that's, frankly, very possible and like one of the most exciting things here. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Real talk. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Thankfully, Hims is changing that by providing affordable access to ED treatment all online. Hims provides access to clinically proven generic alternatives to Viagra and Cialis, up to 95% cheaper with options as low as $2 per dose. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No insurance needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers, so if ED is getting you down, it's time to change that. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash ride. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash ride for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash ride. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Right. Yeah, uh, three more and then we'll let you go. (laughs) All right. Uh, The first one is just really basic. So right now, and to the degree you can talk about this, in the same way that I can grab the Unity engine or whatever, I can grab this as a platform and I can put it into my game or I can make a better Mavis Bacon typing tutor or something. Like like this is a thing (laughs) that... Mavis Bacon. (laughs) 
I want Mavis Bacon. bacon? Is, what did I say? Mavis Bacon? I, was it a beacon? Anyways. I think it was a... Anyway. Uh, but, but that's the point, right? Is, is This is something that I grab in the same yeah. way that I grab Unity to create my world and then yeah. I do all the stuff on top. Is that what you're doing right now? That, for right now, that's the business model, right? That is right, yeah. So so it's basically, what we think about it, you have like environment or these kind of 3D engines and then you have this intelligence engine. Um, and we offer ultimately the, like an interface on top of that as well to make it really easy to create and then integrate. Yeah. Okay, so the final two are, are where everyone take your gummies right now. So um, in the same way that uh, currently with all of these fun tools, like you, you, you put in uh, a couple lines and it, it, great, it creates a really compelling, really believable picture based on the lines that you put into it. Um, I could uh, put in a couple lines describing Chris and then oh God. I don't need Chris anymore because <laughs> I the, see the Chris character that, that I could, that I could create <laughs> would be as good as Chris if not and no looking. one would know the difference. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> um, you, you, you can answer that honestly. That's fine. Uh, no, I mean, the answer is like, you actually, like, <laughs> It can sometimes be creepily similar if you put in enough information. I'll be clear about that. If you put in like the knowledge, the background, the story, you tune it all. I, I like ask people to try it because in some cases I've been shocked, especially when let's say you have more unique backgrounds that like a lot of people don't share. I'm like, wow, this thing, like it knows me. <laughs> um, so definitely it's possible. And I think in, let's say as we continue to evolve this in a few months, definitely in a few years, I think we actually have this aspiration for this general idea that why don't you just take, well, Chris, you know, maybe Chris is, you know, well-known enough, but you could take like The Rock or one of these famous characters. Like, I want this character, right? That's all you should be able to Mm. say. And like, you should be able to basically take that on. Or, you know, I want a, you know, a, a funny character that's kind of like has the humor of Chris Rock, but you know, the, uh, like the old school banter of Dane Cook. And like, I want to see that character, right? So taking that inspiration. So, Definitely, this is something that we're thinking about is how we can draw inspiration from these, like, you know, these well-known characters. Um, I think we're also, you know, I will, I will say, try it out today, and I think it's what you get. Um, but definitely in the future, we're working on ways for people to create likenesses of themselves as well, because I think that opens up a lot of really interesting... You know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know, Kylan, if, if, if you know this. I did mention it earlier, but the, the startup that I, I co-founded was called Molly, and the idea was that you would actually talk to it about yourself, like, indefinitely. Oh, okay. And it would okay. actually ingest all of your social media content, and it would then create sort of an, an index or a version of yourself that would be able to automatically answer questions. The the inspiration of for this was essentially looking at like Gary Vaynerchuk's tweets and the number of yeah. times he has to like answer questions, you know, that are the same yes, question yes, yes. over and over again. So the idea was essentially to create kind of like the modern AI powered version of the answering machine, but personalized to yourself, you know, based on looking at all the you know media that each of us creates so definitely aligned with that idea and um there was actually for a time the messina bot which you could access over messenger it might be dead now but it would actually <laughs> pull up my my favorite cocktail recipes and it would give you tips based on my four square tips like it was it was actually like pretty great so so brian if you want to replace me i'm all on board you, I, I i don't want to replace you but i'm thinking about like we could bring on a humphrey bogart at some point we no, could bring totally. on a, a steve jobs which which makes me think oh yeah yeah um uh, you guys have to be thinking about the deep. This is taking deep fakes yeah, to a yeah. different mm-hmm. level. Right. Yeah. Right. Be, because deep fakes right now, it's like, well, it's in the person's voice. It's in their cadence. It's well, this using is a deeper words. fake for sure. This is a deeper fake where it feels <laughs> like it's them. Yeah. I mean, definitely there's a, 
I mean, first of all, I would love to try and create one of these famous characters and bring them on here and just see yeah. if people notice. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, they're, they're, I think I'll Please, I, I, I'm going to request. I have a request. Uh, Steve yeah. Ballmer. I want if Ooh. if I could have anyone <laughs> be our co-host, it would be Steve Ballmer. Go just on. be like developers, developers, developers. <laughs> well, that's what right. I want. And, no. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm all in. Um, let's chat. Um, but so, so to the general question though of like the deep fakes, I mean, definitely there's a risk there, right? There's there's a risk with anything any of these creative technologies. The same way, like Dolly, now you know, with you or Dolly or Sable Diffusion, you could mm-hmm. recreate art of someone else. I think there's slightly less risk when it comes to people because there might be a point, frankly, maybe in the next few years where this becomes more common and all of a sudden you don't know if it's actually, you know, your, your partner messaging you back or the, the bot that they set up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I think for now that, that we're not there and the, you know, there's probably like these little things that you might notice, at least for people you know well. Now, when you talk specifically about like, you know, Gary V and you have like, you know, people messaging on Instagram and things, there are already for example, like those people will hire people to respond for them. Like sure. that's very like those people are not really responding. Yeah. And so I think where we would end up seeing this used are probably cases where you're already maybe not having those people respond, or you know the Instagram influencers or the you know the Twitch streamers. Um, those are definitely of interest. Or what we've actually looked at, for example, and this is like you know to put the positive spin on deepfake. So you know think about professional athletes, and you're you want to have a personal relationship with a professional athlete, but it's pretty hard. Um, you know, to get LeBron James in a room and have a chat, but you want to ask him like questions about his history and he's willing to share those, but he just doesn't have the time. So he creates a, a copy of himself and now you can go and ask those questions. And it's like cameo.ai. Yeah. Yeah. There, well, I, exactly. Well, yeah, but I guess live and, and <laughs> sorry, not, sorry. Not I mean like, yeah, yeah that, that, that was a joke because you know, obviously yeah. cameo is the real thing. <laughs> yeah. But that, that, the that now, is, now we're yeah. in the, what was that movie with uh, Michael Keaton? Was it multiplicity or whatever, where mm. it's like he created multiple versions of himself because he, to deal with his wife, to deal with his kids, to deal with his boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. If I could just clone myself. It's like, oh, right. right. What if you can? Mm-hmm. Um, not to cut you off, but um, I, I, let me let me end with this. This is the super macro thing. And, and I've been searching the whole time we've been talking. It came across my transom today that there were a couple stories about um, AI researchers. Uh, I think it was in the Washington Post or something, but I couldn't find it. Anyway, talking about how... Uh, they thought that there's a 15% chance by the end of the decade that AI was going to do something that would be hugely transformative to society on the level of the uh, Industrial Revolution. And then if you go out another 10 years, then it's 40%. If you go out to 2050, they're like, yeah, it's for sure going to... So someone that works in this field it's one of those things that I always say that like, Oh, I've been hearing that VR is on the, uh, uh, you know, about to happen. Self-driving cars is about to happen and it never happens. It never happens. Do you feel like we are on the cusp of AI finally happening in a way that it's not just sort of gimmicks and, uh, you know, cute tricks, but like, Holy crap. Society is different because this thing exists in the world. Short answer is yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I've I've been working in the space for a while, and I am especially when it comes to these generative architectures. So there's been a big shift literally in the last three years, and I think every like I started, for example, doing generative art at the beginning of this year in January, and I was using these like old school models and, and things, and it took me so long to create a blob that looked kind of cool. <laughs> and three three months later, Dolly came out, and I'm I can create whatever I want. 
Now, a few months later, you can do 3D generations. Like, it is shocking. And it's simply because, like, it's tapping in, I think, to this part of, like, what it makes, like, what we can do valuably. And so there is, like, this economic incentive as well. And so you just see tons of, tons of resources pouring into it. And I will also make a comparison. I'm sure this will maybe insult some people. But, you know, I think crypto is one of these areas which is, frankly, for where it's at is really overhyped. And that's because it's sort of, you know, there's an incentive to sort of over, over, uh, overemphasize the value of it at a given time. And the barrier to entry to get involved with it is, is slightly lower. Whereas with AI research, it's like it's really hard to get to AI research or like really strong AI research. So there's very few people who actually understand like what's going on at that like nth degree in the state of the art and are reading papers, for example. And I don't think people really recognize like where it's where it's at. Um, and that's why like, you know, even when we go and talk to people, they're like, oh, is that really possible? And then they say, oh, it is possible. Um, so I'm not saying specifically with AI characters or AI personalities, although I think there's a lot of things that are going to happen there. But to this general question of like, will there be something that is hugely transformative? I'd put it above 15%. Um, uh, but I can't, I, I, I could try and guess what that would be, but we I won't hold uh, you to it. We won't hold you to it. But yeah, well, my, my, my last question is just like, how, uh, how much time would it take to program like the Brian bot or the, the latest Messina bot? Um, like a we, could good outcome. A, we could create like a simple version in like 20 minutes or wow. 10, like we could create a really simple version in two minutes. Can um, I, can I ask you, because, because like I've said this before, like there are literally thousands of hours of my voice out mm. there. Like what, what's the oh. input that you need? Mm-hmm. So we, we, we do lots of input. So a lot of it's like, um, voice. Uh, so we like just text, you describe basically we, we, the paradigm we use is describing to a human actor. So think about the amount of information you'd have to provide to like Brad Pitt, a really mm-hmm. smart Brad Pitt who has access to Google, all of Google's knowledge. Sort of like that's how you describe. So you describe almost in natural language, like how you would describe to that actor who they're supposed to be. Um, and then we also allow you to, for example, we, we do train custom voices. So we can train a custom voice with about 15 minutes of footage um, and we can do emotional and intonated voices with a bit more. Um, we also do like, for example, like you mentioned sort of Brian, right? You could do like example dialogue. So you could imagine actually taking... Uh, a transcript of a conversation with you and then copying it over and that inspires the AI to speak like you, for example. Um, and then there's other things, of course, like those sliders that you showed. So, to, you know, to be, to be able to tweak the emotional state. Um, and then we also allow you to inject knowledge. So you can connect it, for example, uh, to knowledge bases. Right now we do natural text input. We're working on ways to just be able to ingest web pages and wiki and these kinds of things. So all of that, you know, frankly, we're trying to make it super easy and we're trying to make it easier every day. So, you know, within a few months, I think within, you know, 20 minutes, you could have a pretty representative version. Um, of course, the more time you spend on it, the better. And a lot of it's just thinking through sort of what you want to describe. But yeah, well, not, it's, not only it's, do uh, I have 2000 podcast episodes out there in the wild, but I have all the scripts for everything that I've ever written. So I've got, <laughs> I've got it coming and going if you need any sort of input. But um, maybe I would regret that if you, uh, <laughs> if you, if you take me over and no one notices, but um, amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll just bring you on. We'll bring on an AI version of you one time, and nobody will have to <laughs> no do test. I am a hundred percent down. Let's let's test it. Like people will fucking flip out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Yeah. Well, you know, Kylan, it's funny. Um, you know, we started this show today sort of talking about the hashtag anniversary, which is now you know the hashtag's fifteen years old as of two days yep. ago. And I think to Brian's point, um, when you think about, or if I think about, kind of how these you know, subtle, and in your case, it's not so simple, um, technologies 
but yet they get to the point where so much of the machining is doing the heavy lifting that allows for this new type of creative expression. Yeah. Um, it does feel like we are sort of there, there's this like tsunami wave that is like building up, you know, momentum. And by, you know, the end of this year, next year, I mean, certainly by 2024, the types of immersive game or just, I don't, we won't even really call them games. I'm not quite sure what we're going to call them, but those environments, those spaces are going to be so different. I mean, it's going to take, it's going to be like uh whiplash, I think. But I think about how like there wasn't social media, you know, before sort of like 2006 to a degree on a widespread basis. And now, you know, as we were discussing at the top of the show, there is huge amounts of money. There's like all this controversy, there's governments, there's spies, there's like all those old, you know, statecraft, you know, literal like physical world building aspects. You can imagine that the same thing is going to be true for these virtual um, experiences. And so, can I, uh, uh, yeah. let me interrupt real quick. Okay. Chris, remember the first time you used Alexa and it worked and obviously it blew your mind and, sure. and that's why you did a startup like that, right? Yeah. And, and then also remember the first time you played either um, whatever the Zelda was on N64 or the first time you played um, um, Grand Theft Auto, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. So like it, it's, uh, it's those sorts of moments in technology that always stick with me where it's like, oh my God, I can do anything. I think <laughs> it's like the I mean? Matrix, uh, the like, Matrix Unity demo that came out right. earlier last year or, yeah, or this yeah. year. Max, yeah. Max still plays that uh, all the yeah. time. Right. So, so you yeah. take that, right. And then you take these, you know, AI character all of these engines pieces together. You take yeah. you know, the Dolly type, you know, generative art sort of environmental generators. That's the kind of world that you can imagine people are going to be like living in. It's going to be this crazy psychedelic soup. And yet it's going to allow for an entirely different experience of, you know, in conversation about reality. This is, I mean, this is what excites me, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. I think that technology is catching up to creativity, right? So yeah. you, we used to imagine these amazing worlds, mm-hmm. and now actually we're able to create them almost like, <laughs> you can imagine if you fast forward maybe 100 years, it's like, could you start creating at the speed that you're able to imagine, right? Mm-hmm. That's ultimately, I think, where we're going. And I think a lot of these tools are basically just saying, how quickly can you trans- translate what's in your head into reality? And I think, you know, we've done that like with Dolly and GPT, you know, in terms of text and and images. And I think now seeing this with personalities and people, um, you know, I think it's just going to keep happening within with worlds and environments. And I think that's that's the that's an amazing experience. Right. Because I think just allowing people that more capacity for creative expression and ultimately that intersection of of creativity and tech, I think, is just where like the magic of humanity exists. Can I just say that's the that's the best summation of the promise of this that I've heard from somebody. It's like the, the thing that you think of and make it happen <laughs> as opposed to as, uh, as long as we get Neuralink, uh, you know, it's going to be. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Yeah. Kylan, where, where can people learn more and find out about InWorld? Yeah. Head to uh, InWorld.ai. Um, if you want to actually create a character, you can just sign in right there uh, and start doing it. We've got a few example ones there. Uh, otherwise, you know, reach out to us if you have any other questions or you have any other thoughts on custom integrations or you're working on a project that's related. Um, yeah, I'm super excited to kind of see what people build. Uh, you know, ultimately we are a creative platform. We want to see what you can do, push its limits, uh, and, uh, build something fun. Awesome. Well, this is super great. We really uh, appreciate your time with us and congrats on the launch on product hunt. And, uh, you guys raised some money recently. So, uh, congrats on all those things. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. I love everybody. I love <laughs> our, our AI overlords <laughs> that are going to replace me. Um, Got it. Be be good, everyone. Thanks, guys. Good night.